want to laugh my new analogy? It's like I'm like the hair club for men for COVID, right? I'm not just a CEO. I'm also a customer. Welcome to another episode of Conversations. This is Adam Rosh, and I want to thank you for joining me. Magical is how I would describe our next guest, Dara Cass. She is an assistant professor of emergency medicine at Columbia University Medical Center, where she also serves as the director of equity and inclusion for the emergency department. After completing her residency at SUNY Downstate Medical School and Kings County Hospital, she served as faculty of Staten Island University Hospital, where she facilitated the start of their emergency medicine residency program. She previously served as the Director of Undergraduate Medical Education at New York University. As Director, she introduced longitudinal career advising, innovative educational modalities, and numerous clinical experiences. She is the founder of FEMNM, an organization dedicated to the achievement of gender equity in emergency medicine. FEMNM serves as an open access resource for women in emergency medicine, a community focused on career development physician support, and seeing women in medicine thrive. What began as a blog is now a movement, a multifaceted community comprised of women in medicine all over the world. I can tell you that words are not enough to understand the magic and energy Dara brings to everything she's involved in. In this conversation, we talk about Dara's childhood, what it was like growing up in Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn, in a duplex house with her grandparents on the ground floor. Dara shares her story about the spark that led to the founding of Feminem. We hear about how she went from a simple supporter of Mayor Pete in the Democratic primaries to a member of his campaign. And the most amazing part of this conversation is that just a couple days before it was recorded, Dara tested positive for the virus causing COVID-19. So I spoke to her while she was in quarantine at her house, isolated from her kids, but still on the front lines by continuing to care for patients through telehealth. Dara is a locomotive when it comes to getting things done. But I can also tell you that she is someone who brings everyone together, finds the best in them, and builds something where the whole is greater than the parts. So without further ado, Please sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with the amazing Dr. Dara Cass. Welcome, Dara. How are you doing? Hi, Adam. I'm doing okay. Good. So as I said in the introduction, it is a crazy time right now. And so we'll see how long we get to go with Dara here. We'll talk a little about this, but as you know, the COVID-19 epidemic pandemic is happening here. So thought we'd give a little time and and get to know the real Dara. And I want to start by going back to your childhood. I want to hear about what that was like. What was your dinner conversation like? What was it like growing up? Because I want to understand how or what led, what influences led to who you are today. This is not the usual first podcast question I get. I like it. I think it's good. So I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, uh, and I actually had one of those experiences is very like almost like what the tv shows were like right so we lived in a house with my grandparents downstairs and my parents were a nurse and a teacher and they split childcare, you know 
they didn't have, we didn't have babysitting or anything. And I had two sisters and in my house, it was like basically all women and my dad and gender wasn't an issue, right? Like we were all just fine and we could do whatever we wanted. And my parents both worked and we were very empowered. And so a lot of the conversations, we certainly weren't very political. My parents just kind of were surviving, right? They were doing their city jobs and they were taking care of their kids and they were just trying to have a better life than their parents had. My grandparents lived downstairs and they were from the war. And, you know, it was a very kind of Brooklyn quintessential Jewish upbringing. And it was kind of amazing, I think. You know, my brother-in-law's from Sheepshead Bay. I was reading an article that you were interviewed in. I, I saw Sheepshead Bay and, you know, rarely do you still find I don't know many people from Sheepshead Bay anymore, right? I mean, it's changed. It's changed a lot. And so your grandparents lived downstairs. What kind of impact did they have on you growing up? So it's funny. I um, I never had babysitters growing up. I had grandparents, mm. right? And I resented it. I was like, I don't want grandma and grandpa to watch me. I want to have a cool teenage babysitter like everyone else had. And I think I didn't appreciate it fully until I was in college and my grandpa died. And I realized that I had had an amazing relationship with them. Like I would go down for breakfast on Saturdays and Sundays without ever making like an appointment. My parents didn't have to drive me. They would come upstairs for dinner. Like it was a very fluid, multi-generational experience. And it was a gift. And I, I totally didn't appreciate it until it was just a later life thing. And I now am trying to recreate that for my kids, which is why it's ironic that my kids are at my parents' house right now. Mm. Your grandparents, were they born in the United States or they're from Europe? So my uh, great grandparents were from Eastern Europe. Mm. They came here before the war. So mm. most of my great grandparents came in like the 1910s. So they were all here as Jews uh, before the war hit. Although my husband, his mom was actually born in a displaced persons camp uh -huh. in Sweden. As far as your grandparents go, do you remember any lessons or any influences on you other than, you know, clearly they played pretty significant, sounds like caretaker role in your life. Was there any specific wisdom or advice that you recall from that or just general? So I grew up in a very culturally strong family. Uh, and that I think is what my grandparents gave me. The opportunity to realize that, you know, your family is really important, but it's the lineage and it's the like connections that your family makes. Holidays are sacrosanct, but not just for the religious procedure of the holiday, but for the idea that everyone stops and gets together. And I think that when my grandma died, so she died like seven years ago, let's say, and I was already a doctor by then. And I was the doctor that took care of her in the ER and she came to me and I wow. was the kind of the medical translator for my family. And I think that you realize that every time a generation like goes and passes away, that level of mandated culture and family you worry it's going to get disseminated a little bit, like it's going to not be as strong. Because in Brooklyn in the 40s, the parents those days were very concerned about making sure that family stayed strong and connected. And then as we've gotten technology and we've become more mobile and we've, you know, just lived further apart, I think that we did lose a sense in my family of that mandated get together for right. the holidays and be together. Mm -hmm. And even when my grandmother died, we were worried that that wasn't going to happen. And so we've tried in my own family with my my sisters and my parents to make sure that that still stays true because it's so easy just to forget that. And I think this moment is teaching us to kind of reconnect mm. with that because I think that we're all realizing that there's going to be a lot of fleeting moments and we can always make excuses, but there are just some things that you want to focus on when you can. And I think that's one of the opportunities that we're learning in this very uncertain time. 
Mm. Hopefully we'll get to circle back to that in a few minutes. I want to ask you, do you recall, what was the dinner table conversation like growing up on the uh, second level? <laughs> it was loud. I mean, I, I grew up with two sisters and a mom and a dad. My dad, and he'll kill me for telling you this, but it's totally like path and a mnemonic of being the dad of three daughters and a wife, all who have very strong personalities and very specific opinions. He used to go for a walk every night and I didn't know probably for 15 years that he smoked cigarettes <laughs> and that that was his nightly cigarette that he did just to kind of take some time for himself. And when I figured it out, we got mad at him. We made him stop smoking. But the thing was, is that in my house, everyone's opinion mattered. I mean, to a point, obviously, like it was respectful, but we all were told that our voice mattered and we kind of were, we were, it wasn't like a, it's like everyone gets an award kind of thing. It was open and it was loving. And it was, that was one of the other things I think that I learned from my parents, specifically my mom, but the culture of both of my parents, which was, I never worried that anything I was going to do was going to alienate me from them right? There's a sense of security that you have with really good parents. And not everyone's fortunate to have really good parents. Mm -hmm. But I had really, I argue I had great parents, mm -hmm. right? Ones that made me feel secure and confident in who I was. And when you look at the things that create the kind of foundation of the kind of person that I am now, and maybe if they've created a monster, mm -hmm. but I have never been worried that I would do anything that would alienate them, even if I went out on a limb for myself or somebody else, or my opinion was going to be too far. And so that sense of security, that anchor foundationally, I think has helped me be a confident person who can try and do the best she can to change the world. You're certainly doing that. Can you give any examples that come to mind of how your parents made you feel secure and confident or yeah. So I'll use my sister as an example because she was the bad one. Um, my sister would go out sometimes with her friends at night and at like 11 o'clock at night, she would call my dad and she would say, you need to pick us up. Like we we're just like out or whatever it was. And he would get in the minivan and he'd bring them home and he'd make sure everyone was home safe. There was never a moment where we felt like we couldn't call them if we were in trouble or we ever felt like we were had to lie about where we were, what we were doing. We were smart and responsible, but I think that when you think about the security of knowing that you will always be backed up by your parents if you need them, that's important to know that you're just never going to be alone. And I think that that's a foundationally important thing for parents to do. Gotcha. So when I say or mention Dara Cass in the emergency medicine and medical community, you know, people perk up, they get excited because you've had, <laughs> you've had a, you played a role in lots of people's lives. And one of the things that while we knew one another just from circles of medical training, medical education, it wasn't really, I feel, until you launched Feminem that we spent more time together, we spoke more. And a lot of people know you as the person who really developed this awareness that was always there, right? But you and other people in your team really brought this out into the front, into the stage here. Was there a spark? Was there an event that led you to say, I'm forming this organization and who's going to join me? Yeah. So if you take the foundation of growing up the way I did and knowing that I was always going to solve problems and be connected and never have to worry about being alone or alienated or any of those things. After I became a doctor and attending, 
I got pregnant and had my own kids. And I started having to deal with the life cycle issues that were disruptive to, you know, medicine and emergency medicine, my career. And I started solving them for myself. And I was kind of okay with that because I had the confidence that no matter what, like nobody was going to fire me and I was going to be able to have my job and fine. And I was doing it alone. And I was at a conference, uh, CORD, the Council you know, for Residence Directors. Another physician walked over and she was older than me and her kids were in high school. And at that point, we we're doing all the social media stuff, you know, blogging and Twitter had just become a thing. And we we're discussing like how to have decreased knowledge translation and, and increase the communications and stuff like that. And she came over and she was so frustrated because her son's high school had called her and she was in Phoenix. We, we both lived in New York and uh, had called her at Phoenix at five o'clock in the morning to find out where her high school son was, why he hadn't come to school that day. And she said, I, I don't know, because I'm in Phoenix. And B, my husband's a stay-at-home dad. And he's the first call on the card. And you really should be calling him. And she came over to me and like I was sitting at some table or whatever it was and was so frustrated, like steam coming out of her ears. And she was like, I don't know how to tell them that I'm not the person they should call. I keep saying, call Juan first, that's her husband. Mm -hmm. And I realized that all these women were each having that same struggle, right? And it's not that only the struggles of being a parent were important to women in medicine, but it's that there were so many common struggles that people were solving for themselves, right? So if I was solving maternity leave or I was solving my lactation support in my emergency department, there wasn't a common place by which people could share those solutions. And so they were still, you know, refounding the wheel over and over again. And for her, she was like, are there any other non-primary parents that have solved this communication issue with your schools? Because she's like at her wit's end in her son's in high school. And I said, if I could create a centralized platform for that, you know, as we were having all these websites pop up for like learning and we were using Facebook groups and all those things, could I create a community that would empower each other so that they wouldn't have to always feel like they were alone? And could they be connected to each other in those solutions? Like I didn't feel like I needed to be the central solution for everybody, mm -hmm. but I knew that we had to depersonalize these experiences because women when they are dealing with gendered experiences and then also the men that are dealing with experiences that are traditionally not male, right? So what about my colleagues who were men who were primary parents or maybe they were in relationships with other men or maybe they were single parents and they were solving the same questions with their schools or maybe they were talking about their own parents' mortality. Like there needed to be a space that all that stuff could be discussed in a way that was not judgmental or individual because when women would go and do lactation negotiations with their departments, mm -hmm. it needed to not be, I need a favor, mm -hmm. right? It mm -hmm. needed to not be, I know that I'm exceptionally weak or I'm exceptionally needy or I need you to help me right now because I'm not the perfect, no problem employee you're expecting. But it's Feminem says that this is the best practice for supporting faculty coming back from maternity leave. Here's this resource that's not about me, but it would be very helpful to me right now. And that was when we decided to kind of invest in starting Feminem and using it to support the community of women in emergency medicine. And what, what year was that? 2015. 2015. It's five years, almost five years in. And when did it go from, you know, a central kind of sounding board or, you know, a, a repository of ideas and advice to what it is today, which I won't be able to capture in fullness what it is today, but you host national conferences. At what point did you say this thing is much more than just a website? 
So I think that there was a magical transformation when we brought people together in person, right? So the website was around for a year and a half before the first conference. And it was great. And we had done the speakers bureau and all these things. And there was a lot of, you know, kind of digital support and kind of community building. But once we came together for the first conference, I remember Risa Lewis, who's well known in emergency medicine. She's an ultrasound leader. She looks at me. We're sitting in the audience at the first conference and you spoke at the first conference, Mm -hmm. right? And we had curated this stage of people that I thought were innovators and leaders in emergency medicine Mm -hmm. or really in medicine, but could give like a very specific message, which was, I am more than just what you've seen. And I, this is who I am. And we're sitting in the audience and we're like, you know, we're glad we made time for this because it doesn't suck, you know? Mm-hmm. And it, it was a different feeling that we had being in the audience, watching our people on stage present something that was new and innovative, but also really important to who we were as doctors. There was a magic, right? Mm-hmm. And then you realize that I get emails from people all over the world saying, mm-hmm. This thing that you have on Feminem helped me advocate for a policy in my department. And I didn't touch that personally, right? I didn't communicate with them individually. I didn't send them that resource anymore. It has a life of its own. It's it's a living experience. It's a living community. And it's continuing to be iterated and evolving at the hands of the people that are part of it. And in some ways, I have become like I'm an accelerator for it, but I'm certainly not central to it anymore, right? Which is exactly what I always wanted. You know, you want to be able to move past you because if not, then it doesn't have a life when you're too busy doing other things or you're distracted or you're having other priorities come out. So it's now it's this magical space and place where people can find resources they need, but they can also create solutions amongst themselves. Yeah, it seems like right when I think about it, it's more than just you know, a resource, it's a culture, right? And you can't, cultures aren't tangible, right? There's objects that are part of cultures and representative cultures, but there's also the intangibleness of a culture. There's the the spirit, so to speak, uh, and the emotion and the force behind it. And, you know, I've been a huge supporter over the years, and I could certainly uh, attest to that spirit and that force of Feminem. And maybe on a part two, we could dive into a lot more about Feminem, but there's so many other things I want to ask you. One of the things that I admire, skills that I admire about you is being able to cultivate a team. Is there behaviors, techniques? Why are you so good at that? Okay. So I'm a people person. I'm a connector. But one of the things I'm really I think I'm particularly good at is seeing the things that other people have that I don't have, right? I wound up being in the center of a lot of moments because I have a very large personality and a lot of random skills that come useful in spaces. But I don't actually think that I am the near best at almost anything. And I really love acknowledging and finding when other people are extraordinary. And I find myself to be somebody that collects extraordinary people. Mm-hmm. I think if you watch my Twitter feed and you see who I am really close with. I find that I have become close with just so many, whether it's like, you know, somebody like a Jen Gunter, right, who is an OBGYN, who's just remarkable at our communication around, you know, misinformation and pseudoscience, or a Craig Spencer, who's my friend who survived Ebola, who's a pandemic response coordinator, or within the feminine community, looking at Esther Chu, who's one of my closest friends in the world, who just absolutely has the capacity to message things and connect with people around the world in a way that I don't have, one of the things I personally love so much is amplifying and supporting and highlighting those skills in those people and then letting them soar, 
right? It is viscerally, it, it feeds my soul to watch my friends, my peers, my mentees just succeed on like landscapes that they've never thought. And in the conference, that actually comes out with a lot of our coaching programs, right? So one of the things that's great about the Feminem Conference, and I think that's part, it's a good example, is we had a conference that was never about great people being on stage that were already famous, right? It started out the first year we recruited people that were that. Mm -hmm. But then we've developed a coaching program, which meant that if somebody had an extraordinary story, that maybe their speech wasn't going to be perfect for prime time if they were just magically going to go on stage, we could get that out of them by coaching them up and giving them good feedback and, and partnering them with experienced speakers. And so what we found on stage was this much larger cross-section of remarkable stories being told, which then translate to new opportunities for those people and abilities to then tell that story over and over again and new confidence for them. And especially for women, it's that lack of mentorship and amplification early on that limits them from being extraordinary. And I've always thought that that's not a function of them, but of the circumstances. And so that's, I think, one of the things I'm trying to solve. How did you first arrive at this? Like, right? What influenced your life? Did you have mentors or experiences that revealed to you kind of this path of bringing people together, bringing the extraordinary out in others? So I think that it's a rocky journey, actually. And I think that a lot of people who have exceptional, have kind of standout skills find that it's not an easy path or a straight path, like straight away, right? So I wasn't like, for me, it was a struggle to realize that the power that I had was lost in some spaces early on, and I had to find out where that worked. So I do very, very well in paths that I've forged on my own, because a lot of traditional spaces can't handle this. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know how else to describe it, but, you know, because it's not a linear thing. And so it was only until I set up environments that I controlled that I could be dynamic in, that I could help govern, I was able to really be kind of as successful and exceptional as I think I can be. But for a lot of the first 10 years of my career, I was trying to fit a very, very round peg in a very square hole. Mm. And that, I kind of clicked when I realized that I understood my personality, the communication style I had, leadership style I had, and how poorly suited that was for traditional academic medicine. Because I'm not built to be the chair of a department unless somebody gives me that chairmanship, knowing all of my skills. Mm. But I'm not going to go and be a traditionally promoted person out of the, you know, division chief, vice chair, chair. It's just not my path. That doesn't mean that I couldn't get recruited into a job to basically manage a department, but that that will always have to be the path that I have. Did you come to this realization on your own? Did you have people that you spoke with? Did you have examples? So I did coaching. I did career coaching. I did the, you know, Myers-Briggs and I looked at myself and figured out where I was failing, right? Where was it that I thought I was communicating something that was being lost, right? And a lot of it's also my relationship with my husband where I, I had to learn in good marriages. I think that's true. We have to learn to match our communication style with the reception style of the person we end up being married to. For me, it was, I think everybody could use good coaching. I think coaching is an undervalued thing for professionals. And I just learned my own energy, right? I know what I need to do to not overwhelm somebody in the first communication. I mean, I have a very, very large personality. I exude a lot of energy. It's actually one of the reasons I love doing telemedicine, right? It sounds crazy, but you know, I come through a camera and a computer in a way other people don't. Mm -hmm. And so when I take care of a patient who's afraid, 
in their house of this new virus, for example, or anything else, I can put them at ease in two minutes over a computer. Mm-hmm. It's like you think about like a Care Bear stare and you channel that energy into the computer and it comes out the other side. I'm good at that. That's not the same thing as running through an ER all the time, taking care of all these intubations, right? That's not necessarily going to be where I'm always the best useful, but I still can do that too. Did, of course you can. <laughs> Did you have any particular job or activity growing up, maybe middle school, high school that also used the skills that you maybe not realize yeah. what it was going to turn into? I was a waitress in college. Uh-huh. I was a really good waitress. Uh-huh. Right. Because you get in there, you find out what everyone needs. You, I mean, like I was, a, you know, and you kind of manage lots of things at the same time. And I think that was a really good like primer for emergency medicine and uh-huh. connecting with people. Were you a wait- waitress in Brooklyn? I was a waitress in College Park, Maryland. Where I went oh, to college. Gotcha. you know, everyone in college needs extra money, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the perception is right you're non-stop you work non-stop meaning you're involved you're building you're caring you're loving you're you have three kids i think three children right i, I do you want to hear a funny story yeah, yeah. so i did this today show yesterday which mm-hmm. was a funny thing and al roker was like how are your two children i was like well the third one's going to be pissed that you forgot them <laughs> al roker's not going to forget you have three children not now. anymore <laughs> <laughs> does he still didn't he He's been on a long time. When I, growing up in New Jersey, I used to see Al Roker on the news. No, he has been on forever. Yeah. So, all right. Now, everyone knows that it's not always happiness at all times everywhere, right? There's stresses. There's messiness kind of behind the curtain, right? And that's for everyone. Everyone. Uh, And so when you are feeling, let's say, overwhelmed or unfocused, you've kind of lost your focus temporarily or there's increased stresses in your life. How do you deal with this? How do you manage that? What do you do? Where do you turn to? So I think that it depends on the thing that's kind of giving me anxiety or focus. So a lot of times, and I learned this from you, actually. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? So you told me once that you spend one day of your week, like just thinking and organizing your life. Yeah. And I, I don't do that as well mm-hmm. as you do. Right. But you know, there's a time when you're like, there are days where you're just like drinking from the fire hose, right? There's a maelstrom of inputs and I'm an extrovert. So if you're an extrovert and you're having like a, just an enormous amount of inputs coming in, it's like feeds you and you move faster and faster and faster. And so recognizing that level of kind of just, like baseline movement and energy and watching it build, it's an, it's a thing for me. I have to know when I have to take it down, right? A lot of times I would do a podcast mm-hmm. and I would be running, right, to catch up to, to be doing it at the time. And I would speak so fast mm-hmm. because I was moving so fast before the podcast mm-hmm. that I was like on hyperspeed. Mm-hmm. I had to like recognize that. So I try to not do that. Although mm-hmm. I'm sure I just realized that I need to speak slower now. But a lot of times I'll go to the glass board behind me. So you can see my office. Mm-hmm. I have this just plain old whiteboard and I will just spend an hour mapping out whatever my thoughts are. Mm-hmm. Right. Am I thinking about Feminem's conference and speakers and location? Am I thinking about my kids and their homework? Am I thinking about, you know, groceries or dinner? Although I don't actually think about that mm-hmm. because I don't offload that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but I need to kind of get it out of my head. Scott Weingart is another one. I mean, mm-hmm. there are just these people, and again, they're not all women in my life, even though everyone thinks they are. Mm-hmm. Um, they're super exceptional that I have learned from. 
And Scott had this very early algorithm of getting shit done and making sure that you don't keep it in your head. One of the best ways to continue to be successful over and over again is to not remember to remember everything, Mm -hmm. right? And to be able to, because it's exhausting. And so you have to make sure that you have the resources set up to support you. That's a true executive function, Mm -hmm. right? Is learning how to offload the things that have to be managed, but not by you at first pass. Do you have a system for that? Like, So you have your whiteboard behind yeah. you. Is it just when you feel compelled, I got to get these ideas down? Do you have an actual formal system? So I did in the beginning when I started doing this, I used Nirvana, which was an app that was really good at this. And it kind of set up like a, it's, it's modeled out of the getting shit done yeah. mentality. Yep. A lot of times now, like I have a great executive administrator for Feminem. Uh-huh. And incorporating her, not just me and Jenny, so everyone I think knows that Jenny and I founded Feminem together, but we're both doctors. And there was a lot of stuff that could be done for Feminem that needed to be done for Feminem that weren't medical and they weren't about the healthcare workforce. So I was able to, you know, empower her to start making decisions about the management of the conference and some of the finances and managing the accounting. And that was stuff that I, in the very beginning, done by myself, but now I could get her to do. So those are the ways that you build a team behind you that isn't just the exceptional front-facing people, but actually also exceptional back-office people. Gotcha. So what is one of the best or most worthwhile investments you've made in yourself? And this could be money. It could be time. It could be energy, right? But something you've done for yourself that has paid dividends. Yeah. Well, I I think so. I go to SoulCycle. And there's a reason I'm saying that. SoulCycle is expensive. And in a lot of ways, there's a lot of decisions about these classes and whether or not they're worth it or whatever. And I am not like a fitness buff. It's not like I do it for like this incredible, you know, whatever. But I know that for $30 at the end of the class, my mind is going to be clear. Hmm. And it's a privilege. It's not cheap. And it's like a real thing that I look at as a choice. But I feel like it's not just the money, it's the time. Hmm. It's the fact that it's 45 minutes. My phone isn't with me. Nobody can bother me. I can just get through my thoughts and I can clear my mind and I can just listen to music. And there's something about, for me, moving as fast as the music asks me to Mm -hmm. that allows my mind to get clear. And I've been doing it for years now. And it's really something that I think is an investment of time and money in myself that allows me to stay sane and productive. And it's amazing the thoughts that I have there and what that turns into in the real world. Do you bring your whiteboard with you there to mark them down? I don't, <laughs> but I have been known to walk home from SoulCycle with voice memos, like just getting it out, That's you know? Right. Yeah, it's really amazing what exercise could do. In fact, there are many kind of products and features of Rosh Review that were designed or I, the ideas came to me on on runs and jogs. And I think this is, holds true for lots of people in lots of different areas, right? Whatever it is, it's the clearing of the mind, right? It's the empty space. It's what I call like active meditation. Right. You know, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give your 20-year-old self or your 30-year-old self? I would tell myself a couple of things. One, you have a lot of time, so you can like enjoy your moments a little bit. I think especially when we're becoming doctors, right? This is a very specific thing. I was in a rush to become a doctor. Mm. Right. I wanted to get through college and medical school as fast as possible because I knew it was a long haul and I didn't go abroad. I didn't do a lot of the things my friends did. I didn't even 
really enjoy certain parts of college or even high school that I wish I did if I just knew I could have had another year, mm-hmm. right? I think there's a problem with how we do education. I think, again, we may learn this from this moment of, you know, an entire country of kids being on a very slow education right, right now, yeah, yeah. that we don't all have to move that fast all the time around education because there's a life experience aspect to it that I think is a little bit lost. In medicine, we see all these older physicians who did something else first come back and they they try to tell you this, but I think you don't realize until right. you're older. The other thing I would tell myself is earlier, I would say the skills you have will match the moment somewhere. Mm, because I like that. There are so many things, like when you are the round peg trying to fit into the square hole, and it's still coming to fruition for me. And I'm a little overwhelmed sometimes at the rooms I'm in now and the moments I have, but who knows what's going to happen, right? Like, I don't know that everybody's meant to kind of blow up from their quarantine bed during coronavirus. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't know. That's who I am, Right. right? I get to capture these moments and hold on to stars and watch them shoot. Right. That happens at random, unexpected times in your life, but it will come to you. You don't always have to manage it. And I think early on, I felt the need to manage those moments and look for them and not just let them come to me. And that's what I would probably say to myself. And one of these moments was just happened recently, I I think, where you were on the campaign trail in the 2020 Democratic primaries. Yeah. How did you get connected uh, with Mayor Pete? So actually, it's almost identically to how I do most other things, right? I basically, no, I'm serious. And it's it's almost like predictable algorithm at this point. I saw him on TV and I thought he was amazing. And I knew that we were roughly the same age. And I knew some people that were in his, had known him earlier on. And I reached out to them and said, I want to do a fundraiser for him in my house because I thought he was young and interesting. And I wanted to at least give him a couple of bucks. You needed to get like the $65,000, whatever it was, or whatever the number of donors was. Right. And I reached out and I made it happen, right? I make things happen. Mm-hmm. And I offered my house and I said, well, give them a little bit of like, we'll raise a little bit of money, bring some people in. It'll be fine. And we'll see what happens. And then I just kept doing more, not like exceptional levels of things, but just like filling in gaps. So like if there was a new fundraiser that they needed to amplify, I would put it on social media. I would call my friends in Detroit and I would say, he's going to be in Detroit. Are you there? And I wound up both being a connector for the campaign in spaces. And I also then started offering things like policy advice on gender equity and healthcare Mm -hmm. and saying, I have this perspective as a woman in emergency medicine, let's talk about your gender equity policies. And I offered myself to the policy team. And I just kind of became a member of this very extraordinary community. And I think that his campaign was very special in its ability to connect with new voices. And people's feeling of being of belonging to the campaign. And so I wound up for basically a year continuing to help him raise money, amplify the policies, start actually doing surrogate events around gender equity and healthcare, and recognizing this other voice that I had, which was this intersection of advocacy and healthcare mm-hmm. or advocacy and gender, mm-hmm. which we had been doing at Feminem, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And now this was a new platform. And it was a new community to connect with. And a lot of the skills that I had developed in our community were very transferable to a larger scale with them. And there hadn't usually been a lot of doctors doing that. And so in a lot of ways, I helped support on this very grassroots clinical level why certain policies were important. And so that was extraordinary. Now, you 
work on feminine and the work you've done is political in nature, but you are not a politician. And there are people who will write into, let's say, a congressman or a congressperson and are involved in their communities. But you took this one step further. And what I just want to understand is there's a difference between sending an email and saying, hey, like, have you thought about this policy and actually joining a presidential candidate's campaign? And so what was how did you go from, oh, I'll hold a fundraiser to being a part of that team? Because you you were right there. You were part of that team. And I think that is something how you do that, right? How you go from a supporter on the sidelines to being a player on the field is a skill that I think a lot of people, how you do that, a lot of people may be afraid or they feel uncomfortable. What was that for you? How do you do that? So first and foremost, you have to have insight into what you're really good at, right? Mm -hmm. So like you have to know, I didn't try to become a member of the climate team, right? I didn't try and do any of, and there's a lot of things that I could have thought were fun that I wouldn't have been good at. Right. I stayed in my lane. My lane's Uh wide, but Uh I stayed in my Uh lane, which meant that I offered myself for the things that I felt like I was I was useful for. The other thing is I um, made sure that when there was an ask, I followed through. Mm -hmm. So one of the best ways to is to under promise and over deliver. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's always been true. And if you do that without an immediate like you, you don't need something back. Right. So like I didn't do any of this. Because I wanted a better America. Like I literally did. I wanted I wanted Pete to be president. But I also wanted his voice out there and I wanted his campaign to be better. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I could help it be better in those moments. So you have to have confidence in your skills and acknowledge and insight into your skills. You have to offer and listen when they ask and then offer what you can. And then you have to, I would say, over under promise and over deliver on those actual things. And then they will ask you to do more. And the last thing I will say about it is. Don't be offended if you've offered something and it hasn't gotten picked up. Mm -hmm. One of the skills I've learned over time is that everybody has a lot to do. And the person that you may be working with has a lot of things to manage and your needs isn't always one of them. Mm -hmm. And so you may offer something that you think is super valuable and then they may never call you back. Or that they may remember two weeks later after the opportunity has passed to just remember, like acknowledge that you offered. Realize where they're coming from. And this is one of those coaching things that I learned early on when I was getting frustrated with my bosses. Sure. Like remember that your boss, your whoever you're reaching out to, has a lot of things to manage. And so if they're not listening to you, if they're not dealing with something, it's probably some motivation that they have that's separate from you. And so don't take it personally, right? Don't take it as an affront and then be pissed and, and run away. Right. And so if you do that, those kind of things, I think that you keep getting invited to different tables that suit you. And hopefully you get to have some really magical experiences. Yeah, it sounds like the concept of right being persistent. If you're told no, then just find another way to get it to you know someone to say yes. How many months were you on that? campaign. I mean, so the first fundraiser we had was in like April, so March yeah. to April. And then he suspended the campaign, I guess, technically February 1st of 2020. Wow. Do you have any ambitions yourself to get into politics? 
I don't know what I'm going to do. I think that I'm never going to say no to anything anymore because right. who? I wouldn't know I'm here now. Right. I don't see myself ever running for office individually because I think that that probably isn't my best skill set. Uh-huh. But I can certainly see working with somebody in an administration in some capacity to help make things happen. Gotcha. I'm a, I, get, I, I get things done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you absolutely do. It's that's one thing that I've always been inspired by from you for sure. Who's been your mentor? And it's, it's a tough question, right? Because mentors are all over the place. But who has inspired you? You think to really, you know, maybe like one or two or three people or ideas that right it could be an idea, it could be a book or something that has driven your purpose, something that keeps you positive thinking who you maybe turn to for advice or insights? So I have a lot of people that I look to for advice for specific areas, right? right? So like you feedback on people. I think that I will argue, and I think that Esther is probably one of the most influential people in my life. Esther Chu. Esther Chu. Okay. And I think it's a very bilateral thing because we're not at all alike. Mm -hmm. And I think people don't realize that. I mean, I hope that they see that we're very different, Mm -hmm. but it's because we don't approach problem solving from similar areas. And I actually think that one of the things people saw was we were in the presidential campaign. We were very, we were two very different candidates. But we were both full force for them. Mm -hmm. And there was this idea of respectful allegiance that we were both fully believed in something Mm -hmm. that kept us together. And we had a night in Iowa. We were both there to canvas Mm -hmm. for the different candidates. Mm -hmm. And she brought me a T-shirt that said, give Pete a chance. Mm -hmm. And she had bought it at the store. Mm -hmm. And she was like, I just want you to have this. And the next day he won Iowa. And I was like, there's something about that team. So I'd say that bouncing ideas off her and having her be honest. She called me yesterday. She said, don't wear turtlenecks on TV anymore. It's not good for you. <laughs> now, you'd argue that most of the advice she gives me is more professional than that, or uh, maybe that is professional, right. but who was going to tell you not to wear your turtlenecks on TV? Right. I think the other person that I think for me as a big mentor, ironically, is my husband, mm-hmm. because he's not a doctor. Mm-hmm. He works in finance. He's an algorithmic thinker. He's a logical guy. He doesn't let emotion get the best of him. He wants specific answers about problems, and he is not satisfied with just because. And so I get to have to think through ideas in a much further capacity. Like, you know, so you want to do this. Why do you want to do it? And what does that mean? What's the investment? Are you going to, it's going to cost us money. Is it going to make us money? Is going to, you know, are you just doing it because you want to, right? right? One of the things he makes me identify early on is that something is a hobby or a job, right? Right. He has no problem with me having hobbies. But acknowledge that early on it's a hobby and not a job. And then don't expect it to somehow magically pay you money later on. Right. Right. I'm not a book reader like you are. Like you are like this like wealth of leadership and management knowledge. You know, you're like. Thanks for that. You are. I mean, you're over. I mean, I one day maybe we'll turn this back and I'll interview you. Because I think that you are one of the most fascinating people I've ever met. And I will say maybe you're another one. I mean, I don't, I didn't want to do this, but it's true. Uh-huh. Early on with Feminem, you were really honest with what decisions I should be making and how I should look at it for a, from a growth mindset as a business. And, right. you know, we don't think about it in healthcare very often when we invest in something that it is a business. But if you're going to take your money and you're going to put it behind a product and you're going to take your time and you're going to spend time with that and then you're going to invest in people, right? You need to be able to do that. So we have time. Don't worry, Adam. I'll give you a few more minutes. (laughs) I will keep everyone at bay for you. I love it. So let's go back to uh, residents, medical students, maybe faculty members. What are bad recommendations you hear that are given 
to faculty members that are given to medical students? Yeah, this goes back to seeing people for who they are, right? I see so many times people get bad feedback because somebody isn't acknowledging their their power, their specialness, their thing, right? Mm -hmm. So it might be that there's a resident who has a personality that isn't suited for that moment, but they haven't helped them with the moment that they're in. I see that a lot with younger, especially women, but not just women, who are getting evaluations that say, you know, whatever, that are critical, that are completely ignoring that special experience that they have or what they bring to the table. And, you know, I've seen that in the past few months with leadership opportunities where people are given entirely the wrong leadership opportunity, but it's Mm -hmm. the one that's available, Mm -hmm. right? So it's like, who wants to be the assistant residency director? And they look for anybody that's available. Meanwhile, they don't realize that somebody maybe had a job as a TV producer before they became a doctor. Mm -hmm. And they should really be running the social media for the team, or maybe it's the departmental website, you know, like, if you know who people are, then you can help cultivate them to be the best aspect of themselves. I see so often that people don't try to get to know people who they are before they try to cultivate them as leaders or even give them feedback. And to me, that's just like a recipe for failure. And I've seen it happen over and over again, residents and new faculty members and medical students. And I just think it's crazy. Yeah, I mean, this, this kind of goes hand in hand with your ability of bringing the best out in people, right? Of identifying secret talent, so to speak, in others and bringing them together. I mean, it's the same kind of idea. It's that just because something is, there's a position open, doesn't mean it's right for you just because you have nothing going on. Yeah. Right. And there's a thing about the idea that when somebody like medical school admissions and residency admissions, right, when there's a gap in somebody's resume or they have like a, a longer track or whatever, yeah. or maybe they didn't do well on the boards or maybe they but like people don't enter all of this to fail. Right. They don't go into a room to be a bad doctor. We don't come to work right. to not take care of our patients like you don't become an employee. You don't like get a job as a new faculty member to, you know, just do the job less well yet. When people are not successful, it's usually a combination of factors having to do with the opportunities that are given to them. And so we're very quick to judge people and to say, oh, she's not good enough or he's not good enough or he doesn't, he's not smart enough. And like, you're like, wait, that person went through medical school and got through college and was top of their class in high school. Like all those barriers they've broken in their life, but now they got to the USMLE and they didn't do well, maybe it was the day of the week. Maybe it's their understanding of how to learn the material, right? And I think that we're looking at the top 1% of the top 1% of society and then judging them all to fail. And I find that to be so exceptional because we should look at them as if they're, obviously they're made to pass. And if there's a problem, maybe it's about the system, but if it's not about the system, what about the match between what they brought to the table and the system didn't work and fix that? That's right. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a, a really interesting perspective. Everyone is qualified, right? If you've made it to that point, if you're applying for it, you've, you're qualified. And unfortunately, there's not a position for everyone. And we end up having to choose people, uh, let's say, for residencies and things like that. Yeah, and it's okay to choose. And I think yeah. that it's okay to have criteria and you have to make choices. But I think that the idea that somehow somebody isn't good enough because of it, it's just that part I find to be fascinating. So what is the last time you changed your mind on an important issue? And what was that issue? Is there anything that comes to mind? Something that you believed for many years and then maybe new information, maybe you had a different experience and you ended up changing your mind. uh, Yeah. 
I will acknowledge that I do that. Uh-huh. And I, it's a humble thing to do, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can't think of an example. Yeah. I'm sure that I could find a better example in my parenting than I can in anything else, mm. right? I'm a lazy parent. I believe kids are going to do mostly just fine. Right. And I think, like, I would say probably screen time with my kids is actually uh-huh. probably something that I reframed on. And I was like, eh, it'll all be fine. Uh-huh. Until my year old turned into a total, like, you know, his uh-huh. personality disorder. Like, uh-huh. he was like, because he was watching all these YouTube videos. Yeah. And they're mostly videos of people playing video games. Right. But he turned into an asshole and I'm sure there was a direct correlation between how many of the videos he was watching on YouTube to the guy. You know exactly what I'm talking about, right? I do. Yeah, absolutely. And it is, I was like, you need limits, right? It was my fault because I was letting him have unfettered time. And I, now it's a bad time to reflect on that because I think kids are getting a yeah. lot of TV time right now, but he's also not in my house. So I can make all these rules that I don't have to follow. Uh, but I think that uh, that is probably the, like one of the things that I was like, I was wrong for not being strict about that because that's something that I have to do to not raise a total, a kid that, you know, bounds off to everyone he meets. Yeah, and sometimes like those are the hardest things to have to do. Yeah. So, all right. We are at the end here. We have used the time allotted right now. And so I think a part two here down the line, I think after or at some point down the line, as we are going through the COVID-19 pandemic, we'll bring you back on because as some of our listeners may or may not know, and this is public information, totally public. I'm say it's not a HIPAA violation here, no. but Dr. Cass here had tested positive for COVID-19. She's been in quarantine. She has a family and she had to address exposures to husband, to kids, So you are not only on the front lines of caring for patients with COVID-19, you're not only on the front lines uh, being a advocate for healthcare workers getting the proper protections and resources and patients getting the proper resources and protections, but you in fact ended up testing positive yourself and you had to manage with the psychological, emotional and physical effects of that. And so, yeah, those things are real. Now you have a pretty active presence on social media. Where could people find you? So the the best place to do it is Twitter, I think. You know, I've had a love-hate relationship with Twitter over the past Uh year, I think. But that's actually the best place, which is uh, just at Daracast. And that's D-A-R-A-K-A-S-S. You know, for me, and I think right now in this moment, Twitter is a real opportunity to amplify the voices of the accurate information people need to have. One of the things that has been very cool now is to be able to say to patients I take care of, either on telemedicine or in person, or even over social media, one of the cool things I just did, and I'll plug it, and I'm still going to give you yeah, some time, you bet. is last night I did an Instagram Live with Pete. Uh-huh. And when you talk about the intersection of opportunities in life and you never know what's going to happen, the relationship I developed in the campaign and with him and we became friends over the campaign. I mean, that's, sure. that's kind of an extraordinary thing that only that happens. Is. It's a little bit much, right? But we did, we became friends. I yep. mean, it's kind of amazing. So when I realized that I was able to have this voice as somebody that was infected and positive, but taking care of patients. And I also see a lot of patients on telemedicine and in the ER. So I have this understanding of the course of illness right now of what's happening. I could dispel a lot of the myths and anxieties that people were having 
And so I said to him, would you want to do an Instagram live? Right. I had done it with some, I had done it with Katie Couric, right? Which is really funny. Uh, like, I, actually, I, I, I caught a bunch of uh, yeah. that. Yeah. So she approached me on it and I said, okay. And I did it with her and it was great. But I was like, we're not friends, me and Katie Couric. I mean, right. maybe we will be now, but right. you know, we weren't before, but Pete and I were friends. So yeah. wouldn't it be amazing? Like you and I are having this conversation. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. If a guy that ran for president and a doctor who has an infection, who also knows what she's talking about, sat there and just like dispelled the myths for everyone else. Right. And it was awesome, really. Yeah. You know, I really felt like it was something that the, the downstream effects to people who don't know me and don't know him, but are just looking for somebody to trust. And when it goes back to social media and Twitter, we are looking for accurate information anywhere. And the trusted sources of people that we know, either first degree or second degree, are the only places people can go right now because of the like overwhelming amount of misinformation and, and honestly inaccurate information coming from even just up to the president of the United States right. about this moment and what we need to do in management and the treatment and the anxiety and the reality on the ground. And as healthcare workers, we see what we're hearing from administrations about when this is going to be over or how to address it versus what we're dealing with as frontline workers wearing masks and seeing patients. That disconnect, it's gaslighting, right? It's unhealthy emotionally. And so somebody has to be out there representing that true voice because then it makes everyone else not think that they're crazy. Well, I think that's a great way to kind of wrap this up. You know, my wife was listening and watching, I suppose, on Twitter or it was on Instagram live interview or discussion with Pete. Yeah. And uh, I haven't seen it myself, but uh, my wife told me it was really wonderful. And so I encourage everyone out there to find it. Is it just on Instagram or is it also on Twitter? It's on, so it's actually, if you go on my Twitter feed, I actually okay. put it out, the, the actual gotcha. YouTube video of it. And I will say that your wife is way smarter than you. Then, so I trust her opinion. Absolutely. I'll take her feedback a <laughs> hey, lot. I don't argue against that one. <laughs> Excellent. Not to put you on the spot here, but is there anything in this really interesting time that we're in and time will tell kind of where and what happens, but anything you'd like a message to send out I think most of our listeners are going to be people in healthcare, people in medicine, students, aspiring healthcare workers. Anything that you'd like to send a, a message out to them about? This is an uncertain time for all of us. And I think as healthcare workers who are also, in my case, a daughter, a mother, a sister, a wife, it's very hard to reconcile all those different aspects. What does it mean to go onto a front line of an infectious disease that you are worried about it's going to affect you as a person, but how do you manage that with your family? What do you do to manage your risk amongst your peers? Every one of my friends who I find out is admitted to the hospital and it's happening now almost on a daily basis is a gut punch. And I think the most important thing we can do is recognize our own humanity and be there for each other. None of us have to be a hero. If you're in an environment that feels unsafe, Make it safe before you go back in. Lean on your friends and your colleagues, but also recognize that this is the moment that America needs us to step up, right? And emergency medicine, I mean, this is an emergency medicine moment. And as an emergency medicine doctor, there's literally nowhere else I want to be but on the front lines of this, whether it's communicating with patients directly or helping people understand their signs and symptoms or taking care of patients in the ER or just being like an anxiety sieve for my family. We are uniquely suited for this moment. And that is an honor and a privilege. And I don't forget that any given day. Well, I couldn't have said it any better. So thank you, Dr. Darakas. And I want to really wish you and all of your colleagues and everyone you're working with 
in New York City there and you know, across the country. Everyone's thinking about you and we wish you all well. You are making a difference every minute of every day in everyone's life. So thank you. And thank you for the time that you've given me today. And hopefully we will circle back and, and do a part two. We will. Talk to you soon. All right. You bet. Bye. Thanks. Hey guys, this is Adam. Thanks again for listening. If you liked this episode, please go to iTunes and rate the podcast and leave a review. Every positive review helps. Also, remember to subscribe to the podcast so you automatically get episodes downloaded to your podcast library. Please send any questions or feedback to the email conversations at roshreview.com. If there's someone you have in mind who you'd like for me to have a conversation with, please let me know. Don't forget to check out the Rosh blog at roshreview.com backslash blog for more excellent content. And if you are a student, a PA, nurse practitioner, or doctor who is in a training program or residency or has an upcoming exam, take a look at roshreview.com and sign up for a free trial. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you at the next episode. So long.